Hello and welcome to another episode of the Viva Bastardo show brought to you by the Haggerty Podcast Network. Today we have automotive legend Pete Brock, designer of the Corvette Stingray and the Shelby Daytona. We talk about how the GT40 was actually kind of a rubbish car. We talk about German aerodynamicists from the late 1930s and how that influenced the, in, the beginning of the Shelby Daytona. Uh, we have a, it, He's just an utterly fascinating man. He's watched an incredibly significant period of American automotive history happen. Um, and let's get into it. This episode brought to you by Haggerty Driveshare. Haggerty Driveshare is the coolest online car sharing platform around. Renting out your ride on Driveshare earns you extra cash to fund your own automotive adventures while also fueling the passion for fellow enthusiasts. Start earning today at driveshare.com or download the app. So, um, back again, back again. So, uh, once again, thank you again, Peter, for, for doing this. Um, I guess um, I've, been, I've been researching, I've been, I've been poking around on the internet and, look, and researching some of what you've done and, and, and the life you've lived. And, and you've kind of lived um, an extraordinarily significant sec- segment of, of the American automotive history of racing, of cars. You've seen so much. It's, it's kind of extraordinary. But I'd love to, for you to start off with... Um, the thing that started it off for you, and I think it began with a chap called NATO, a French gentleman. Am I right? Yeah. NATO. Yeah. NATO Bourgeois. That's right. Can you tell me a bit about? Yeah. Because I think that it, can you tell me a bit about that experience and and what that why that kind of made you go down the path? Well, it, it was very interesting because uh, you know the whole sports car movement. Uh, on the West Coast, uh, up in the San Francisco area, was uh, you know very much centered around originally MGTCs and that sort of thing, and that was really where I came into it because I had a next door neighbor who had an MGTC, and uh, uh, there was a little shop down in Sausalito that specialized in, in sports cars. It was really quite unusual, uh, but it was you know only a, a couple of miles from my grammar school, so I used to pedal over there every day after school and. And just hang out to to see what was going on because this was a really exciting thing to me. I mean, these cars were so totally different than anything I'd ever seen. And uh, and as I began to hang around that shop more, I realized that one of the key guys in the shop was a guy named Nato Borjo, who uh, did fabrication and could do aluminum bodywork, repair work. And he was building one of the very first. Uh, specials that was racing there on the West Coast. And, uh, you know, he didn't speak much English and he had a little rope across in front of his little thing. So I used to stand there and watch him work. And, uh, you know, over a, a matter of months, he built up this MGTC special. And then on one Saturday, I'd just come over there and again, it was looking over there and he walked over and he, he pulled this little rope off in front of the shop and pointed in the seat of the car and said, get in, and took me for a ride in his blown MGTC special all around the Marin. And it was a life-changing experience, you know. I mean, it was just incredible to see a, a hand-built car that I'd watched go together, uh, run around the mountains and hear that supercharger screaming and, and realize that 
pavement was just, you know, inches below my butt. And, you know, and it never was where we were pointing the steering wheel where we were going. He was steering it all with a throttle. And uh, it was a, you know, just a fabulous, fabulous time. I think you're, that, that's, you're so fortunate in a way because I think it's so rare that, that it's very, there's very few of us that can point to a specific moment in our lives and say, that's where my, the course of my life changed. So it's it's yeah. amazing yeah. to be able to, to to be able to have have had that gift. Um, had you ever seen anyone drive like that before? They which on the drive on set. Uh, had you ever had you ever seen anyone drive like the way he was driving, driving with the throttle kind of? Oh yes, absolutely, all with the throttle. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was so far beyond anything that you that you'd ever experienced. You know, on a day to day to day basis that that. Uh, <clears throat> You know, you could you could sense the whole car was not uh, going, uh, uh, you know, where it was pointed, but it was in a drifting attitude, uh, under complete control, and it, it was such a really wonderful, uh, liberating experience. You know, <laughs> I, well, it sounds to me like maybe that was the first time you you'd been in a car that felt alive in a way that wasn't kind of constrained by the normal rules of the road you were kind of it was a living thing that you were kind of like almost like riding a horse in some way or something oh ab- absolutely yeah and of course that you know i mean uh, that that started me reading books and stuff you know i mean like uh, uh the original kings of the road book you know by ken purdy was so wonderful you know i mean it was such a classic book to sort of learn that there were guys like Tazio Nuvolari who could drive cars in this manner. And it was describing exactly what I'd been through and seen. And that uh, that was the way cars were really raced in those days. And it was, uh, uh, I've had more fun, I think, you know, reading up on history. And it's always, you know, remained with me a whole interest in history of the great drivers of, of their styles of, of driving. So, all these MGs, these these are coming of these are being brought back by the GIs from Europe. Is that right? Which, the MGs, all the MGTs, and all all those English sports cars was that they, that wasn't that the GIs? Yes, right. I'm, I'm sorry if I don't hear it. Uh, yeah, everything in this particular period, the early early you know, late 1949, 50s, was all MGs at that time, and uh, uh, the, those were all, of course, you know, brought over by the GIs and stuff, and. Uh, uh, for that whole early racing theory. And I think that's what made it so interesting is that everybody sort of had the same car and the same thing to work with. And it wasn't until we began to see cars that came in like the XK120, which just changed everybody's idea of what a foreign car was. I mean, I remember at the, the uh, San Francisco Auto Show when the first XK120 came in. I mean, it just, the, the crowd around that car, you, you couldn't even get near it for, you know, a couple of hours. It was incredible. And uh, so there was a real breakaway, uh, I think, that that car changed uh, people's perception of what uh, sports cars were. And then, of course, uh, uh, Johnny Von Neumann brought in the first uh, Porsches down in Southern California. We began to see those at those races in Southern California. And then uh, the, the interesting thing was that the guys from Southern California who came up to race in the northern regions, you know, around Pebble Beach or Stockton or some of the races up there, actually came up with specials, you know, a guy with an MGTC with the V860 in it, you know, it was like, it was like a complete breakaway because 
in the north, everybody sort of wanted to race these cars as they were received from Europe. And the guys in the south completely took everything apart and hot rodded it and made it special. So that's what the, that's what special I means. The whole transition to specials was an exciting era. That's what the word special means, right? It was a, it was basically yes, so rebuilt and, and recreated to be better, yes. I guess. It's funny it's funny you talk about English cars because now of course English cars have the, the they have a terrible reputation, but no one I think people have forgotten or early English cars have not the best reputation, particularly with Lucas Electronics and all the rest of it. But I think that um people have forgotten that it seemed from what you've said and from what I've read that English sports cars were kind of the genesis of the hot rod scene in the late forties or on the racing scene rather in the late forties, early. 50s. Oh yeah. Look at what, you know, what, what Allard did. I mean, he was the guy that really picked up and started using the first, you know, flathead V8s and then moved over to Oldsmobiles and Cadillacs and stuff. And those cars were really dominant uh, in the whole uh, sports car scene, at least on the West coast. So the, um, the English influence was there for a long, long time before uh, these, uh, crazy guys in Southern California started coming up with, you know, really wild stuff. So after, after this, this sort of extraordinary NATO experience that, that basically set you on the path that you, you've been on for the last few decades, um, you, you, I think I, I was, I was reading a pretty interesting story about how you managed to cajole your way into art center as a student. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I had gone down there. I'd heard about this school, you know, and I wasn't really finding that uh, the, the standard academic way to go through college was anything that, that really uh, excited me about it. I mean, I could, you know, do it, but it, it just wasn't good. But I'd heard, you know, because of my interest in design, I heard that there was a school in Southern California where they were teaching automotive design, and I. I drove down there, I, I think it was on an Easter vacation or something along that line. But um, uh, I found the school and uh, I drove in the parking lot with the rest of the students and sort of walked into some of the classes and just sat down and started listening to what was going on and realized that that was really uh, exactly what I wanted to do because uh, they had uh, the students work on the walls. They were discussing what they were doing. I mean, it was really a, a hands-on thing about how to design automobiles, which was just so far beyond anything that was being taught in college at that time that I just decided right there that I wanted to go to school. And I, I had really no uh, understanding of what Art Center College of Design was. So anyway, uh, you know, it's sort of after I'd been in class for a couple of hours and wandered around the halls and looked at everything. I went up to the front desk and and uh, and said, you know, I, I'm going to quit college and I want to go to school here. I, where do I sign? You know, thinking that it would be a very simple thing. You just, you know, pay your money and pay it. And they were very kind and said, well, you know, this is a school for for professionals who come back from industry and, <clears throat> you know, to polish their skills. And I mean, I just wasn't listening to any of it. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, where do I sign? I want to draw stuff like you've got on the wall there right behind me. And, uh, you know, they explained again what the school was and that I would have to submit my portfolio. And there's a long silence, and I, I didn't even know what a portfolio was. I had absolutely no art background at all. And uh, <clears throat> the lady was very kind and explained that, you know, it was just, uh, you know, some 
some of your best work, you could draw it up and bring it in. And that they would look at it and determine whether, you know, you were ready or not. So I said, okay. <laughs> and, and I went out to my car, grabbed my three ring binder with the blue pencil, you know, and, and just sat there and, you know, doodled cards like I did in study hall and, and brought them in at the end of the day and said, okay, here's my portfolio. <laughs> you know, and I just said, I'm not going to go away. I said, I want to go to school here. So they finally said, well, uh, we'll give you 90 days, you know, and, uh, and if you can, you can prove to us in 90 days that, that you have your, that you can stay here. Uh, uh, so that's the way I got in there. Sound, I mean, now they like require a college education. I mean, they turn down so much talent uh, to have all of these requirements that are not really what's needed. You know, you want people who are inventive and have great, uh, Abilities, they don't have to have all the academic background. That all comes in time because you realize what you need and you only, uh, you know, go out and find out what you need to make it work. I mean, looking at, looking at, well, starting with that story, but looking at your life continuing onwards, it sounds like it seemed like you're a man who wasn't very interested in the idea of no. <laughs> well, I, you know, I just, uh, I think it, you just have to do whatever it takes to get, you know, if you have an idea of where you're going or what you want to do, or you've seen the people that you want to work with uh, and uh, try to meet them or determine how they got to that position. Uh, that's the important thing. So let's skip forward. There's, there's so much opportunity out there if you just look around. So let's skip forward a few years past your, uh, the gate crashing into the, in, past the school career. And uh, you started very early at GM, I think, right? At, were you 19, 18? Yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, 19, yeah, right. when, I, when I started at GM. And again, it was this thing that, uh, you know, my, when I quit college, uh, my mother was at, you know, supporting my college education. And she just finally wrote me a letter and said, you know, uh, I'm not going to do this anymore. You're on your own. Do whatever you want to do. So I had a choice of, you know, either going down, getting a job at, at McDonald's or something. And uh, so I, in, in the five semesters that I'd been at Art Center, um, I got to understand how the system worked, that, uh, that the executives in the uh, large automotive companies would come out and review uh, students' work and see who they wanted to get going. And I realized that Chuck Jordan, who later became a, a executive vice president of design at General Motors, a really talented guy, was at that time a headhunter for, uh, for GM. And I knew what was going on at GM in terms of racing, that sort of thing. So um, I got to know, uh, got to know my man. when this letter came that, you know, I no longer had any funds to continue school. I I contacted Chuck and, and said, just explain the whole situation. And he just said, I'll have an airplane ticket for you tomorrow. And uh, flew me back to Detroit. And I started work at 19. Sorry, you say you explained the situation. It was a matter of timing and people. You, you, you said know. you explained the situation to Chuck. Is, is that what you said, Pete? Yeah. That, yeah. What does that mean, yeah. explaining the situation? What magical formula well, I was said, involved? I, I don't have any more money to go to school. You know, my whole goal is to go to work at GM. 
And if you've got a spot, any place that you can come back there, uh, you know, you're going to have a guy that's going to work his ass off. And, and, and I did. Uh, you, and, you must be very. Without, without Chuck, I never would have made it. What's that? Without Chuck, I never would have made it. No, it, again, it's, it's uh, people that can see that you are really passionate about what you want to do and uh, realize that it's not always exactly what skills you've got, but what your potential is, what you can develop into, right. and that you're really dedicated to something. You're not just looking at it as a job, that you know, it's something that you really want to be involved in. And, uh, and he could see that, and, and it paid off. You know. After you explain, I mean, I love that. The explain the situation <laughs> covers a whole myriad of very persuasive words. I'm sure that you used to to make him see how what you could do. So, so after after you once you were in GM, I th- you were very involved. I mean, didn't you design the original Corvette Stingray? Is that yes? Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, again, a matter of, of strange timing on things because. I had gone back to General Motors because I knew how involved they were in performance and what was going on back there. And that uh, Zora Duntoff had come in and was working as a, a, a consultant engineer to upgrade the Corvette. And uh, that was pretty exciting. But what was really interesting is, is that uh, he had convinced Harley Earl, who at that time was head of General Motors styling, that the real way to, to uh, to convince the American public that uh, the Corvette was a serious automobile is to do what the factories did in Europe, and that was to build a factory-built special and race against the best international cars. And so uh, that project uh, was called the SS Corvette, and um, that was started by Harley Earl. And that car was completed in in the spring of 57 uh, for Sebring. And uh, it was a, a really beautiful car, but it never got the development that it should have. And the thing that uh, that really killed it was the fact that um, Zora Duntoff could not convince GM Engineering to equip the car with disc brakes. And of course, this is 1957. Jaguar had already won Le Mans starting in 1955 by using disc brakes. It wasn't that the cars were superior, or faster, or better drivers. They had disc brakes, and the car cars just absolutely annihilated everybody else. So why did the factory so was, why did the factory why did they not want to put disc brakes in? Was it a cost issue? Because they you know, these guys are so think that they can do everything and that they won't look around and see how important it is what other people are doing. I mean the 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 sort of the uh, attitude in Detroit was like we're the best in the world. Nobody can do anything better than we have. And that attitude was just so hard to get through it's interesting because in a way uh, i guess they, they wouldn't even look at this I, I guess in know? a way um you know america had come out of the second world war as kind of the supreme victor in a way they had based won the yeah. second world war for everyone and 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 i guess you can almost see that american confidence must have been at such an extraordinary all-time high that the idea that anyone else could conceive of something better than the americans could do it was inconceivable probably yeah. so there was a it's kind really of stupid, very stupid that's interesting us, you know it's very interesting yeah. But you've always you've always yeah. been a you've always been a bit of a contrarian. I mean, we'll, I'd like to talk about this later. But you know, some of the choices you made. Well, I think it's because of my interest in history. You know, I've, I've read a lot, and if you, you just look and see the mistakes that people made, you know, over the last 
hundreds of years, and they keep repeating the same things over and over again. And uh, you know, I mean, we're doing it again. It's, it's absolute stupidity. It is amazing, isn't it, to see that we we, we see one of the defining <laughs> traits of humanity is the, is the impossibility of learning from our mistakes. Yeah, right. That's just uh, every generation that comes along, and it's like every third generation. You know, the first generation, you know, fights like hell to get something done. And then the second generation enjoys that. And the third generation comes along and, you know, they just take it for granted that everything's great. And it isn't. You have to keep, you know, striving for the best. Right. And uh, if you don't do that, I mean, with everything, I mean, our whole educational process has gone away because it's turned into a, a control of unions on the educational thing. And uh, without that uh, great education, you know, the, the whole country is doomed. Well, speaking of history, I, I, I read this really interesting thing that um, I think while you were at GM and, and while, I'm not sure if it was before or after you were working on the Stingray, you were ferreting around in the archives and you found some very, it's just such a, I'm, a, I'm hugely interested in history myself. And to me, and, yes, and, and, and to me, this this little story that I heard uh, that you told just it, I was I found mesmerizing. So, um, you found some information about aerodynamics, some German aerodynamicists, right? And, right. And, and, you know, it, at that time there was no internet or anything, and, and I found these. You know, I think it's half a dozen to any pages, and they're all mimeographed. You know, it's like this whole method of copying things down, evidently when the armed forces had gone into Germany at the end of the year, any technical paper they found, they copied. And depending on whatever the subject was, they would send it to an American uh, company that had a reasonable interest in such a thing. So there was this paper written on, on aerodynamics, and I, I later learned it was written by Leinhard Koenig von Faschenfeld, you know, a German aristocrat. Uh, and it, you know, his story was very much like mine. He started out, um, he had enough money to uh, race motorcycles and had gone to uh, the uh, German factories, you know, uh, saying, you know, I'm passionately interested in racing your motorcycles. And of course, the factory guys looked at this kid 19 years old and just blew him off and wouldn't give him any help at all. So, you know, what he did, he went over to England, bought one of their bikes and came back made the changes on it and blew them off, you know, and became the, the German motorcycle champion in 1924 with his own ideas again. Uh, and then again, he was absorbed back into the uh, industry. So he wrote up a couple of papers on, uh, uh, on aerodynamics and what he thought was the problem with, with uh, aerodynamic studies at that time. And he had early, early on had gone to work with one of the leading guys in, in uh, aerodynamic study, a guy named uh, Paul Jurey, who had actually worked for the Germans and had come up with the ideal um, shape to keep air attached to form on uh, Zeppelins. And of course, Zeppelins have a you know, long, long shape, which you know, doesn't necessarily transfer to an automobile. So in trying to take that Zeppelin shape and put it on an automobile and, and squeeze it down. Uh, it looked very, very racy at that particular time, you know, but uh, it was very, very inefficient. And he was, you know, had made some tests and realized it was, a, you know, might have been uh, 
trendy or, or uh, accepted by the public. Well, if you, look at a lot of area, if you look at a lot of uh, quite a lot of automotive experimentation in the 30s and 40s, a lot of that stuff had these long teardrop tails because as you, oh, yes. as you say, that's yes. what they imagined would be aerodynamically efficient. But what you're saying is right, that this, right. this chap had discovered it was actually not that at all. And then you discovered these, exactly. these kind of like hidden documents, these gems of wisdom hidden in GM archives. Yep. No, no, you, you figured that out. And then uh, <clears throat> to in, in, in order to sort of prove that out, one of the first things he did, uh, he wrote a paper on how to redesign uh, the German buses because uh, Hitler had built all these new autobahns across Germany in, in an effort to uh, improve commerce and to be able to move people and stuff around. So in taking a standard uh, bus at that time, he figured out how to add, you know, another six or eight feet in it, uh, more people in it, and uh, change the shape and, and make it uh, aerodynamically more you know, fuel efficient. So he, he couldn't, uh, he, he tried to patent that idea, but the German government wouldn't give it to him because he had not yet finished school. But they could see the value in what he did, and, and they, they said, well, well, we'll give you a job as an intern um, with uh, uh, Reinhard, uh, with uh, Wunderbal Kamm. So he went to work for Wunderbal Kamm, who at that time had a, a special uh, government-sponsored studio on aerodynamics, both for airplanes and cars. And obviously, Kamm could see his, uh, his talent. And so they worked up a few... Uh, very interesting looking cars. And, and then later, you know, in time, I saw a lot of that uh, stuff that was available. And I took some of that information and, and gave it to Bill Mitchell at, uh, at Styling because we were at that time working on the Corvette, you know, and I said, you know, here's some really interesting information. And of course, the stuff was so strange looking with the chopped off back end and everything that, you know, Mitchell, Mitchell was a fabulous guy, but he knew exactly what he wanted. And it definitely wasn't what I was proposing. You know, he just looked at it and said, God, kid, that's the ugliest looking shit I've ever seen. And when you just do what I'm talking about, you know. So, well, this, is um, what, this is what, this is what, this is probably mid 50s, maybe? 1957. Okay. Okay. So, so we're talking like, you know. You know, airplane tails and 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 all the all the aeronautical s styling signatures and all yep, that stuff. Yep. So, so sorry. He uh, hadn't that's seen Dr. the Cadillac yet. That's Doctor Doctor Herbert Cam, as in the Cam tail, is who you're what you're talking about. Yes, right. and actually, the Cam tail. Uh, you know, it, you've got to understand that Reinhard Koenig von Fashionfeld was uh, name started also with K. So you can imagine what's happening. You know, they're they're trying to explain this to the German media, and the media always, of course, wants to shorten everything down. So instead of calling it the, the Kynard, you know, Kynard Koenig von Fashion Bell Tail, it was simply to call it the Com Tail. <laughs> so it became the K Line Tail, but it was actually started by Reinhard Koenig von Fashion Bell. I see. That was a slightly and, less uh, catchy name for marketing, say, for marketing uh, purposes, though. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that, that was the, the way that that came about. So, so if we could just so you you leave GM at some point, um, and how did you end up um, with Shelby and 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 of course, I mean, I, as people I'm sure know, you're the you're the designer that the Shelby. Well, I, I left uh, I left uh, GM, you know, around uh, 
58 or so, or 59, right into that period there. And Shelby had just won Le Mans at that time. So he was at the peak of his driving career. And it was and really, uh, people were just beginning to understand the Shelby name in the United States. Even though nobody had ever really heard of Le Mans, it was getting, at least in the American automotive media, was getting some exposure. And when Carroll came out to California, um, he was looking around for a number of different things to do, of course. And uh, one of the things he wanted to do was to develop his own sports car. And he wanted to uh, finish out his career. He had announced that he was going to retire. He had a bad heart. And uh, the best special being built in Southern California at that time was being built by a, a great, great, uh, you know, blue-collar garage floor engineer, a guy named Max Valchowski, who was a great mentor of mine. And uh, Max's cars were uh, really uh, almost a, a cartoon version of an ugly car, sort of to poke fun at all of the very wealthy owners who had, you know, big 40-foot trailers and two or three Maseratis or Ferraris or, and whatever. And Max's old Geller Special, which was powered by a Buick, uh, was very, very competitive with those cars. So uh, Shelby came out and uh, made a deal with Carroll to drive that old Geller Special in the last couple of races. And by being in Max's shop there, when I was working for Max, I'd taken my first race car there. I was working for him. And in exchange for time in his shop, I could uh, chase parts for him during the day, and he would kind of help me out on what I wanted to do at night. So that's where I, I met Shelby. So I started, you know, hanging out with him and, and understand what Carol wanted to do. And, and Do you uh, remember the very first uh, time you met him? Yeah, absolutely. You know, he just walked in the shop there and, and you know, uh, a very, very charismatic character. You know, there, there's no question about it. Carol was really great. But, you know, probably one of the wisest guys in motorsports was, was Max Belchowski. And Carol, of course, thought he could talk anybody into anything, and he wanted wanted Max to build these specials for him. And that uh, uh, you know he could see that Carol didn't have any money or anything, and he you know played along with him, but there was no way that he was going to get involved. With him. So I got a, had a chance to see kind of both sides of of, of Carol. You know what a what a, a great salesman he was, but also could see the reality and what Belchowski uh, was saying that. Uh, you know, there's just no way this guy's going to do it on, uh, at least with me. He was able to talk other people into getting a lot of money. <laughs> they could go. So how did you work that was Carol's real talent. Well, how did you end up working with Carol then? Was it, was it, did you leave Max's shop and, and, or did Carol offer you a job? Well, the, 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 the real thing started out with Carol. That one of the things, uh, the only school at that time in the world uh, was in England, and Carol wanted to do an American uh, school for race drivers. So um, he had been talking to another uh, name in American racing, a guy named Paul O'Shea, who, along with John Fitch, was one of the two drivers that was had some sponsorship from Mercedes. So O'Shea was sort of a uh, top name in American racing, like Carol, and. Uh, they had talked about doing a driving school together. And of course, O'Shea thought Carol was going to work for him and Carol thought O'Shea was going to work for him. 
And obviously these two egos were not going to work together. And so when it finally came to the point that they had thought they were going to work together and they didn't, you know, uh, Carol realized that uh, I had, you know, sort of the ability to do what he wanted to do, but he didn't have the time. And he says, you know, I don't have the time to do this. You want to take this over and run it for me. And that's how I started working for him with the driving school. And actually, the, uh, the, all the uh, <clears throat> how to teach that didn't come from Carol at all. It came from Ken Miles because we were doing the development on the, uh, on the Cobra at that time at the track. I had done some of the early testing on the car, and then Ken came aboard, and uh, he was our development engineer on the Cobra. So when he would come out to the track, I would ride with him on his test runs. And, you know, he just taught me so much on this, uh, these runs on the development of the car about, you know, how to tune the car or what it felt like or why it was important to take the corner a certain way. And I just, you know, absorbed all of that and turned that into the curriculum that we used for the driving school. And it, it worked out very successfully. It should have been the Ken Miles School of High Performance Driving. It's so interesting to hear you talk about um, the American racing scene, scene with the idea that there was no kind of look to Europe. There was no interest in what the Europeans were really doing for, for a long time, it seems like. Again, this damn thing about Americans thinking that they're so superior, it's just really, really stupid. But uh, I think that the, the whole automotive industry uh, trained a lot of young guys in the United States of what was really going on. At all, I mean, it, it had really, really started in the 1900s in France. That they were the guys that were the real leaders of engineering in, in the 1900s. And uh, when they came over and won Indianapolis in 1913 with the Pujos, I mean, that was really an eye opener uh, of what was going on in Europe. You know, so, so. So okay, so you were running the you were running the driving school. You were working with working at the driving school. And then how do you go from doing that to suddenly t designing one of what, what's now seen as one of the most iconic American cars ever designed? How does that happen as a 22, 23-year-old? Well, it was, uh, I, I think I was about 25 okay. by that time when I did that. But again, it was a thing that when I'd gone to work for Carroll, you know, I'd never gone to work for him, you know, telling him that I was an automotive designer. I'd gone to work for him wanting to be a driver on the team. And of course, the minute that we showed what the potential was, we had all the best talent in the United States immediately uh, at his disposal. You know, Dan Gurney called him, Bob Bondurant called him. You know, we had all these top guys, so there was no chance that I'm going to get a, a, a ride in the car at all. So I had to, you know, uh, stay alive sort of doing what I did do, which was uh, design work, graphics, and whatever. So I spent most of my time working for Carol when I wasn't teaching school, sort of recreating the, the Shelby image, uh, you know, designing new logo for the Cobras, uh, the Carol Shelby uh, logo on his shirts, his t-shirts, his jackets, his, uh, his stationery, his business cards, his advertising, you know, all of that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, and the car liveries, all of those things that, uh, that, that created this image for Carol. So that was, 
that was everything that I did. So when the opportunity came to uh, to go to Europe with the Cobra, Carol realized, you know, that there was no way that we could go with a Cobra Roadster. And uh, nobody in our in our group uh, uh, had any understanding of what the what the FIA and the the rules were for Le Mans. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, what, Ferrari. What made what made Carol um, realize he couldn't go with a roadster? Was it was it FIA rules or was it was it a technical like he thought that the roadster couldn't take down? Could it was on. just the reality of the fact that the car didn't have the top speed right. to compete with the cars in Europe. You know, I mean, uh, Aston Martin had easily the speed that the, that the Ferraris did, but they just didn't have the reliability or engine. So that was our, our real competition with Jaguar, Aston Martin, and Ferrari. And Ferrari had the best engines and, uh, and had, had the winning, winning combination. And Carroll had tried originally to go back and work for, uh, for Ferrari. And uh, at that time, again, you know, Ferrari was in such a position that everybody wanted to drive for him. So when the opportunity came for him to meet with Enzo, you know, Enzo knew that he was a talent, and and like he did with most of the European drivers, he said, "Well, I'll I'll give you a test in the car, and if you would like to drive for me, uh, uh, I can do that, but I won't pay you. You can have a little share of the winnings or whatever." And of course, Shelby was didn't have any money, and he you know he felt insulted that uh, that uh, Enzo wasn't uh, offering him any money on it, so he just quit and. Uh, went and did something else, went back over to Aston Martin and was very successful with it. But um, in the long term, I think that he wanted to go back in some ways and, and show up Ferrari and that the opportunity to do that was with the, with the Cobra, but he needed the top speed on it. But what most people in the United States did not know <clears throat> was that in 1961, the uh, homologation rules were that you had to have 100 cars built before it would be considered a GT car. And of course, Ferrari had a very successful car in the uh, short wheelbase 250 GT. And uh, he was now feeling the pressure from both uh, Jaguar and Aston Martin uh, from aerodynamics. So he began to do with his own guy, Giotto Pizzerini, who was working for him, was trying to convince uh, Enzo Ferrari that they should, uh, you know, look at the advantage of aerodynamics for the automobile. And uh, Enzo Ferrari was very resistant to this. He was very much an engine guy. But as Bizzarini uh, began to develop uh, some different shapes on, on existing cars and realized that, that there was an advantage there, and it finally came up with a 250 GTO body, which was now a completely different body. Uh, there was no way that, uh, that that car could be accepted because they would have to build 100 of them. So there was a, a clause in, in the Appendix J rules called two, Section 254, which would allow manufacturers to make slight changes during the season to, uh, uh, you know, if you came out with wider tires or you want to change the grill, you know, some slight styling changes. So these Evolutions of type were allowed, so um, isn't, isn't Ferrari that, isn't tried that, to uh, 
but in the context of the but in the context of the the Daytona the Shelby Daytona that's uh going from the regular Shelby to the Shelby Daytona is not an evolutionary change that's a, that's a huge change in styling exactly but that's essentially what what Ferrari had done in 61 and going from the short wheelbase car to the GTO body was a was a completely new body and he couldn't get that by the FIA so when he submitted his papers in 61 they of course turned him down because when they saw what he wanted to do it was a completely new body so Ferrari was very political knew that each of the members on the FIA board that uh, made these rules uh, was in some way connected internationally with their own event in their own country. So you had representatives from England, from Germany, from France, you know, from the United States, whatever. And he called each of them individually and says, if you don't pass a rule that says you can put a whole new body I'm not going to bring my cars to your race next year. So they, they very quietly changed the rule, and you can make any any change on the body. Well, of course, this opened it up for, for Carol to put a new body on the Cobra. And uh, uh, Ferrari had to jump on everybody for a year with that because he did it in 61, came out in 62. So by the time that Aston Martin had done the 212 and, and uh, uh Jaguar had done the lightweight E-types. They were already gone. So we were the last guys to do it. And I kept telling Carol, you know, we've got a great thing in this rule here. And nobody at Shelby understood, you know, the chance, the opportunity to do that. So there was a lot of resistance to the idea. And the fact that I wanted to put this very strange looking body on it with a chopped off tail and everything, there was even more resistance to that. So, uh, there was no way even to get the money from Ford, who had been giving a little money to, to Carroll to uh, run the SCCA events. So, Pete, did, did you and, have uh, at this point? Did you have? Um, were you showing people a, a finished design of the of the what's now called the Daytona uh, Coupe? But were you, did you show them this design and, and people going, "Oh, that's horrifying! I don't know why you have this weird tail." Is that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, they just they just plain thought it was ugly because there wasn't any. There weren't any automobiles at all that looked like that. You know, I mean, everybody realized that the most beautiful cars were being done in Italy and expected uh, that, that was the way to go because it, it, the racing design is usually an incremental change. There are very few people that make bold changes that are successful with them because it takes so much development time to do them. So the idea that this uh, strange-looking car would, would have any advantage uh, was just beyond any acceptance of, of anybody in our crew. And, and they literally called it Brock's Folly, you know. And I mean, I had, you know, a great relationship with all the guys, but they were all kidding me on it and said, you know, you can't believe that anybody's going to, you know, back on building that kind of looking car. Well, and you and, uh, you had, and the, the ideas behind this car were the ideas that you had found, you had come across all those years before in GM, the, the papers from, I mean, yeah, the, the, absolutely. what's amazing to me is this kind of, tenuous line but a continuous line from 1939 german aerodynamicists to you right. in california and say like early 1961 yep but that was it that's amazing and uh you know there was one other guy 
in Italy, the designer for Zagato, who had realized the same thing and had designed the TZ Alpha. But of course, nobody in the United States had seen that car because it came out in late 62, 63, same time that I was designing my car. So I'd never seen it at all. So it was, you know, it's really remarkable that when the Daytona was completed, uh, it was almost uh, line for line. It looked just like the, the TZ Alpha. And uh, they were both very, very successful cars. And, so you, you, everyone's laughing. You're showing everyone the design of the Daytona. All your friends are laughing at you, saying this is a horrifying, ugly thing. So how did you get it made? Well, the, 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 uh, again, it was Carol's ability. Because he had no option. Uh, Ford wasn't going to give him any money to go to Europe or whatever. And he wanted to go. So the only thing he could do was sort of, uh, whether it worked or not, uh, he could come up with a, because there was nobody else. He didn't, couldn't hire another designer, you know, to design a car for him or anything. So this whole option of building the car was a, a whole uh, thing that was sort of off in the corner. But Ken Miles had gone to Carol and, and told him that, uh, uh, that what I was proposing really had a lot of value. And the real value not only was it the lines of the car, was it that we could produce this car, you know, in a matter of months. And he knew that the, uh, the corporate method that Ford was going to do with the GT40 was going to take a long, long time. Because not only were they going to have to redesign it completely and then go through all these sort of bureaucratic changes that you go through, and we could build this car in no time at all. So that was the thing, I think, that uh, he was able to convince Carol. So Carol was able to, be, to uh, talk with uh, Tony Webner at uh, Goodyear and have Goodyear put up the money to build the car. So it was a great, a great deal for, uh, for, uh, for Goodyear because uh, this you know, challenger from America to fight against Ferrari was going to come out with this brand new Goodyear tire. Um, so that was going to give them great publicity. So for very little money, they were going to get, you know, worldwide exposure on it. Do you remember how much, and, uh, uh, do you remember how much it, you were given to put together the Daytona? I don't think that we got more than about uh, maybe thirty-five to $50,000 total to do the entire whole thing together. And uh, the, uh, to give you an idea how cheap it was later when we built the bodies in Italy, the next five were built. Those cost $3,500 each. Okay. So, you know, but the, the first one, you know, had a lot more to it than just building the body on it. I mean, a whole bunch of different stuff that we had to do on it at, uh, to get the car built on it. So you, but if we hadn't had Miles and uh, a young kid from New Zealand named John Olson, who came on as crew chief on the car, because he had not yet sort of developed the respect of the rest of the guys in the shop, uh, sort of he was put on the project and turned out to be a, a really uh, great guy and could do just about everything on it. You know. Oh, so they put the new kid on. They put the new kid on the project that no one wanted to touch. Then, right. <laughs> Right. You well, can't you know, deal with the ugly car in the corner. Well, again, also, you got to realize, and, and I didn't know this at the time, but but Shelby and Remington had both gone over to Europe 
um, in uh, in sixty in sixty two, and had seen um, what Eric Broadley was doing, and had. Uh, you mean in terms of the GT? You're talking about Lola and the GT forty. With a Mark Six Lola, right. before Ford had done it. So when 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 Ferrari turned Ford down, they were looking for another option, and they ended up, you know, buying the design from Broadley. And the problem was, again, Broadley had a completely worked out car. And when Ford came in, uh, they took Roy Lunn, said, okay, we can redesign that car and make it better. Well, you couldn't make it better. All he did was make it worse. Hang on, hang on. We're, know, leaping, we're leaping ahead here. I'd, I'm, I'm dying to know what happened, Pete, when you, so you build your car and then the, you build the Daytona um, and then you, you were presumably on the track when they first took it around the track, I'm guessing. And yes, so yeah. I'm, I'd love to know, like, what was that like? What was that first run like? Because I know you came back with a time that was, con you, you tell the story because it's an amazing story. Well, we, we took, you know, again, nobody in the shop really believed in what we were going to do. And this was our first test at Riverside um, in uh, uh, February 1st uh, in 1964. Uh, so we finished the car in late 63, and, and we were literally building it off in a corner of the shop because uh, the, the, there were a number of different, well, Carol at that time considered far more important projects. We had all the customer cars to build. Uh, we were doing the first uh, Cooper Monaco's with the V8s in them. Uh, and uh, so we had the uh, SCCA championship, the privateer cars, and uh, and... So we built this car off in the corner. So when we took it out to run it, you know, everybody was sort of laughing at it, you know, thinking it wasn't going to be very successful. Did everyone, we come, out, did everyone come out from the shop to watch or was it just, you know, a couple of people? Was it, did everyone want to see what the monster Just a couple of people within the shop, okay. yeah. I mean, if, if everybody had been involved, we would have all gone out to see the car run. But, you know, I was like, well, they're going to take it out and run it and it's not going to be very good. So, of course, it turned out to be a very, very fast car. Uh, and uh, Ken didn't even run a lot of laps of the car. I mean, he got out of the car right away and said, you know, this thing is so good, but we need better tires for it. We need this, this, and this. And called Carol and, uh, and told him how good the car was. And uh, uh, when we got back to the shop, Carol already had, uh, you know, all the times and explained everything to guys in the shop and said, I don't care what anybody thought before about what we were doing. Uh, we're going to concentrate on this and have the car ready for Daytona. And so that was the turning point, the, the fact that we just rolled it off the trailer and it was instantly three and a half seconds a lap faster. And, uh, and we didn't even know what the top speed was because there's no speedometer or anything, but he knew what his RPM was. And uh, so we, we calculated that out. It was, you know, it was about 180 miles an hour. So we knew that, you know, without even trying with on short course gears, if we put long course gears on it, we would be easily uh, in the same uh, uh, competitive uh, level with the Ferraris. So th the problem was we didn't have enough traction at the rear. And, uh, and that gets into another story that I had, had designed uh, uh, a rear wing on the car for more downforce because I knew that we were probably going to have some lift because any type of shape that uh, is very smooth like that is going to create some lift. So I had designed a wing for the back end on it, but nobody in the world had yet 
started putting wings on cars or even spoilers. So again, there was more resistance to that, and I couldn't get anybody in the shop to believe that we had to, you know, put this wing on the car. So you think when we finally got the car built, I said, you know, we've got to put the wing on it. And uh, Bill Remington, who was our chief engineer, really brilliant guy, just refused to do it. He says, look, it's not going to work anyway, and I'm not going to spend five days building this damn wing for you. Uh, let's go test the car. And then uh, we'll see after that, because he was certain the car wasn't going to work. You'd think that after you'd proved everyone wrong with your extraordinary revolutionary design, they would have given you a little bit of leeway and said, all right, you're, we're wrong. We, you're right about this one. Maybe you're right about the wing. But I guess <laughs> that didn't happen. Oh, you got to realize, I'm the kid in the shop. Right. You know, I mean, we've got all of these really talented, great race car builders. And I'm just in awe of their ability. And, you know, who am I from, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a kid that can draw some pretty pictures. So there was very, very little uh, support for any of the ideas at that time. Right. And then as soon as it, was, as it was done, it was like, okay, kid, stand aside. We'll take over. <laughs> We're the race car team and we'll, we'll develop it from here on. So I couldn't do any more development on it. I go to Carol and say, look, I, we can be even faster. And he says, look. We've got so much division in the shop already on this. It's creating so much controversy. Just leave it alone. We're winning. We're doing well with it. And so that was the deal, just to leave it alone. And it was good enough as is, but it could have been so much better. That's an extraordinary story. And then um, I remember we were talking a little bit earlier when we had a quick phone call. Um, you, <laughs> it's funny because when, from my perspective growing up, the, the the just jumping ahead a little bit to the GT40, the legend of the GT40 is, you know, everyone knows this or everyone thinks they know the story that you know, Ford tried to buy the Ferrari. Enzo was going to do a deal. Yep. And he's, yep. then he says no. And he sells to Fiat. Ford's pissed off. He says, right, I'm going to build my own car. And then magically, the GT40 sort of emerges fully formed in 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 sort of glorious, you know, and, and goes on to win Le Mans. Um, yeah. But but it wasn't that way at all. Yeah, <laughs> I think they shined up the history a little bit because from what you were telling me. I mean, it, if you looked at it when it first came out, it was a gorgeous looking automobile. I mean, from a styling standpoint, it was great. But they'd made all the same mistakes that everybody else had made. You know, they had a pointed nose on it and had too sloping a tail on it. So Lun had gone back, gone backwards from what Broadley had suggested on the car i mean broadly had given them a, a winning shape and if they just built that car they would have been a winner to begin with so all these changes they went out and tested it and it wasn't any good i mean the very first time we went to to Le Mans test days which was the most important uh, i think period that hardly anybody knew anything about because it wasn't a major race and it wasn't covered in the press but uh, ford brought Two of the new GT40s they just finished up at John Wire. Uh, at that time, it was uh, Ford Advanced Vehicles, and brought those to Le Mans uh, for the test days, which was in you know a month or two before the actual race. So this gives because Le Mans is such an unusually long track and stuff. Uh, the AOC always had the test days. Uh, to allow manufacturers to come with their new ideas and see if they work. So we, of course, showed up with the uh, with the Daytona. And unfortunately, all of our drivers were still down at the Targo Florio. 
So there was nobody to drive the car on the first day. So it was sitting in the, in the pits. And Joe Schlesser uh, had been hired by Ford brilliantly because to run at Le Mans, you always have to have a top French driver on your team. So um, uh, Schlesser took the first GT40 out and the car was aerodynamically unstable and he crashed it. And luckily he wasn't hurt very badly. So uh, he was rather disgusted. He came back into the pits and he knew that we had already set fast time at Daytona with a, with a Daytona coupe and that we had won Sebring, but nobody in Europe was really aware of what the potential of the car was. They, they'd heard that it had done well in the United States, and but it wasn't out on the track. So uh, John Olson, who was the crew chief, was there in charge of the car, and Schlesser said, why don't you have the car? Why aren't you out testing it? And uh, Olson had to explain that our, our drivers, Dan Gurney and Jerry Grant and stuff, uh, were down at the Targa Florio. And he says, well, why don't you let me drive it tomorrow and uh, I'll test it out. Of course, Olson said, I think it'd be a great idea, but I can't do that without Carol's permission. He'll be here tomorrow morning. But in the meantime, uh, he explained how everything in the car worked, how all the switches were set the seats up for him, got the whole car set up for him. And so it was ready to run the next day. And then, uh, so Ford was going to run the second car, their next GT40 the next morning, and they were going to put Roy Salvadori in the car, uh, who had been Carroll's partner at Le Mans in 59. So they had this great, great team of Salvadori and Schlesser for the Ford GT40. And of course, the first one was crashed by Schlesser. So Schlesser explained to, to uh, Salvadori about the problems aerodynamically with the car and told him to be very, very careful in a certain spot on the track. And of course, the car was so unstable. It also crashed. So in the first time that they went out with the Fords, they both crashed. They were both destroyed. They were total. So at that point, Schlesser got in the in the Daytona. It's now raining. Went out, broke the lap record, set the fastest time for GT, and was only just just a couple seconds fast, slower than the than the fastest prototype. And he said, you know, the car is faster, but it would be stupid to run it because we're in the rain. It has some lift in the back end. Uh, you know, you have to be at Spa the next week. So leave it as it is. We've got the lap record. So right there, that was a major, major change that proved how good the Daytona was and what a lot of problems that the GT40 had. As beautifully as they built it, and all the extra work in it. And... It was a great looking car, but it just didn't work. Was there no point at which, um, I mean, did was surely Ford must have been aware of, of the, the competency of the of the of the Daytona? Was there no point at which they said, you know what? I mean, I, I guess they had. No, uh, that, we'll we'll take the Daytona. We'll show the GT40 thing. Did they have a, They must have had that conversation, or or maybe not. What do you think? No, really, Ford had no idea that the Daytona was you know anything really special because. They were so focused on this program. I mean, they had all these people on this program working on it, and they were very jealous and, and very, you know, secretive about it and weren't going to admit that, you know, somebody else could, with the same engine could do something better. So until that Daytona uh, proved it at the Le Mans test that we were really the superior design, that really opened the eyes of Ford. Uh, and uh, 
they at that point they began to see what the potential was. So, uh, but so what what on what but, on earth made Ford take this design by Broadly and then redesign it to make it utterly useless? <laughs> Why do you think they did yeah. that? You know, again, it's the same thing. You have it's it's a not invented thing here. You you take a project and give it to a, a new group of people, and they look at it and they don't accept what's there, thinking, "Oh, well, we can change this, 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 and this by." our experience in the past and make it better without realizing what a, what a gift that they have that they don't know anything about. So broadly with, you know, he had the same problem I had in trying to convince people how good his car was. And then they took it away from him and, and essentially ruined a good design. So um, maybe we could jump a few years later and talk about the early 70s, because you were one of the first people um, to start working with the Japanese, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I have to say, it's, it's so interesting to me, because I would imagine that at that time, there must have been real, it, that was a very contrarian thing to do, because I would imagine sentiment, yes, sentiment, very much sentiment so. to, towards the Japanese was people would, they were not the friends of America, people didn't have the, people didn't view them in a good light. Um, and yet here you were working with them, making race cars out of uh, out of their cars. And and actually, I have to, I I, I have it on my phone. I, I I came across some amazing designs that just made my heart sing, Pete, because they're such glorious bits of design. The what's the car you design for the the bus company? The the sport, the race car. You know, you know, they made buses and trucks. That's right. And you did the you know Samurai, yeah. right? Yes, which is an amazing yep. design. Does does that still exist? It does. It it belongs to a, a prominent Japanese collector. I see. Um, and uh, it'd be lovely to someday bring it back to the United States so people can see it. But again, uh, you know, within this this big company building trucks and buses, there was a small group of guys that wanted to build a high quality car. And at that time, the, the quality of Japanese cars that were being sent to the United States was not very good. I mean, they were considered Japanese junk. But because these guys were in the truck business and were really, really concentrating on quality, they said, you know, we can build a quality car that can compete in the American market. But because they were not an automotive manufacturer, nobody really took any of any notice of them and in Japan. They, they weren't, they'd never built a prototype. They'd never done anything. They were, they were truck and bus builders. So uh, the idea that, uh, that they could do something special was really unique. And they had a very, very uh, wise guy that was uh, head of their uh, financial department who'd been trained in London, spoke great English, uh, uh, convinced management that uh, they should go ahead with a, with a project to build some cars for the American market. And that they sent one of the very first ones over, actually the, the very first cars that they were building were built on a, a Renault RC, or, you know, Renault 4 patents and stuff, you know, swing axles in the back. I mean, it was a terrible little car, but uh, we were able to, you know, demonstrate that, you know, with proper prep, preparation it would compete with a cortina or a mini or 
you know, all these other little sedans that we were running in the United States. So they were pretty excited about all of that. And uh, so they went ahead and uh, came up with a beautiful little car that was designed by Michelotti, a 1300 coupe, and planned on bringing that in the United States. And uh, they gave me two of those to uh, run in the United States and develop to see if they, you know, we could compete against the other uh, foreign cars that were doing well in the United States at that time, which were primarily the Cortina and the, and the Mini. And uh, the advantage of, that we made was that uh, uh, racing in the United States was transitioning very much from this uh, SCCA amateur thing to a professional race. And the uh, club in California had worked with the Times Mirror Grand Prix to set up the first big money races on the West Coast. So that had become the top event in the United States for, for the Europeans to come over to. So they brought the best cars and the best drivers and everything. So it was the number one race in the United States at that time. They were getting 80,000 people out to Riverside to watch these races. So they had to have an opening event uh, for that particular event. So they decided instead of going the, the normal way, working with the Sports Car Club of America, because this was a little uh, outlaw club called the Cow Club that had, that had uh, put this race on. They would uh, just open it up and run all these hooligan sedans, you know, because there were a whole bunch of guys in Southern California that had every kind of little, you know, foreign car that they could run around. And so we had a, you know, a good field of about 30 cars and a, and a field of, uh, you know, 80,000 people you know, to watch this opening event. And I showed up with a couple of hot rod, you know, and we smoked the field running one, two, and nobody would ever heard of Hinos. Who are these guys? Where would they show up? And uh, so that made a huge impression uh, on, first of all, that Japanese cars were competitive, but most of all, it made a huge uh, impression in Japan because nobody in Japan had ever heard of, the, uh, of you know, Hinos racing, and they go to the United States and, and win this very important event. And uh, that sort of put them on the map. And so they were very, very pleased with what I'd done and had offered me the, uh, the, uh, the distribution in the United States, uh, the opportunity to run their race team, design their new cars. I mean, it, it was an ideal situation. And then the chairman of the board died of a heart attack and the whole thing fell apart and they were taken over by Toyota. Ah. So the whole project went away. God, there was the whole possibility of a whole other universe opening up for you. Now, I remember the other the other day when we spoke, um, I was asking you about um, the cars that you designed that never saw fruition, because every car designer has a, a few cars that they, you know that they know that they, they, they were the perfect car that just never quite. Oh yeah, <laughs> yep, yeah. No, there's always always cars like that, you know, and the, again. It's, a, it's a, just the thing of the car design business. You get an opportunity to do something and like, you know, one out of 12 maybe will we'll get to any, anywhere. So you, over time, you become, you know, a little uh, suspicious of anything going to go ahead. But uh, at least you get a chance to, to show what it is and build the concept. So what was the, wasn't there a car you built for an English brand, an English company that you told me about? Oh, yes. Uh, British for, for British Leyland. 
They had a wonderful car racing in the United States called the TR6, TR, and uh, had done very well in club racing running against the Porsches. I mean, they dominated that uh, C production class in the United States. So it was always a contest between uh, Triumph and Porsche. And uh, so at that point, I'd already uh, begun developing uh, some cars for Datsun and knew what was coming with the 240Z and it was going to be a big, a big success on it. So even though I was a great uh, competitor with Kaz Kazer, who was the competition manager for Triumph, I said, look, you know, if, if we don't build something really modern for Triumph, uh, they're going to get killed in the market. You know, Porsche's way, way ahead. And the Japanese are going to come in and, and just wipe you out. So let's, Let's take a very successful chassis that you've already got. It won't cost Triumph anything at all just to put a new body on it. And we can really, you know, make a, a killer sales piece in the United States. So uh, the car that designed the car called a TR250K and had all the latest uh, chassis stuff from Triumph. And I just, you know, re-engineered it, moved, moved the engine back, changed the, you know, the balance of the car and put a, a real pretty body on it. It was that, a, it was, a, it was a, a kind of a wedge design, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah it was one of the very, yeah. and when, when was that? The wedge, wedge thing was really coming in. Downforce was very, very important. When, when did you design that one? Oh, uh, it was done, uh, 19, I think our plan was to run it at Sebring in, uh, 1968. Really? So, so you had a you had a wedge design '68. That was, I mean, the wedge, oh yeah, that's so early because I, I'm a huge fan of Gandini, of course, who is the king yes. of the king of the yeah. cheese wedge, um, and so <laughs> and, and and you know the wedge, I mean, was a '70s thing. I mean, look at all so many of the, but but yeah. God, that's so interesting. You were so ahead of your time with that. Well, that's what you have to be to be a designer for cars. You know, it's that's why. It, it's so difficult to get anything done because everything that you present is so unusual looking that there's a lot of resistance to it, but it's just one of the things that you're involved in if you're going to do design work. So do you keep, do you keep an eye on what's happening now in design? Do you look at contemporary cars or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that strikes yeah. your fancy? I think uh, right now there's a car uh, designed uh, uh, at Audi. And the guy that designed it's a guy named uh, Jason Battersley. Battersley, and uh, we saw that uh, car at uh, the uh, Quail Joe in Monterey here a few weeks back, and it was uh, really one of the first great new cars. I mean, here's a four-door sedan, and you look at it, and it just knocks you over. Is this a concept car or a production car? Concept car, yeah. Okay. Uh, New Audi concept car. Is there anything production-wise that 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 you said that's an amazing? Well, the main thing was I could see that it had a really good roof line aerodynamically. It was going to be, but the main thing that was good about it, to, at least in my point of view, was that um, the guy that designed it had worked with form, and practically everything being done today is being done with line. You look at cars today, and they've just got all these goofy lines all over the car, you know, as, as a form of design. And he had done this with a very beautiful, smooth form and very good aerodynamics on it. So I thought the thing was uh, uh, 
you know, really, really way ahead of its time. And, and you know, hopefully, you know, Audi will see the advantage of it and make it into a production car. But are there any are there any production cars that you see these days or sports cars that you've seen that you, you, you like the design of? <laughs> or is that an impossible well, question? Tough. I mean, you know, all the stuff that's being uh, done at Tesla is, you know, very, very nice and smooth. I think they're doing a great job with it. Beautiful little four-door sedan. It's, uh, it's, it's a very, very elegant car. And uh, Lucid's out there doing some great stuff. Uh, I'd say you know the, probably one of the nicest cars uh, that's come out recently. Uh, it's now a little old. Is the uh, the Bentley GT? Uh, very good looking car. And uh, I mean, I look back on when the, the first Bentleys came out. Not not just the the sports GT, but the regular Bentley sedan. That's an incredibly handsome automobile, and uh, it's lasted for several years. Been very good, and uh, now the GT is a great looking car as well. You're a real uh, pragmatist, Pete. It seems that you, I mean I, I feel like it's almost safe to say you were the first aerodynamicist. Would that be safe to say in the American car? Because you that that seems like that was the thing that interested you more. Not really, because I wasn't trained as an aerodynamicist. God, I mean, you know, you know, if you look at the chaparrals, look at what was in. That was a guy that was really thinking way ahead. I mean, it was the, I was thinking a little far. He was way out there, but again, he went out there and and got his nose chopped off because it was so good nobody wanted to compete with him so they banned his cars uh what do you what do you make of um have you driven much in the way of electric stuff or not really have you driven much in the way of electric stuff or not really electric cars oh i think electric's got great great potential but you know we're not going to see it happen overnight i mean everybody wants to see it happen tomorrow because that's sort of the way all the marketing thing goes but we're going to be building internal combustion engine cars for the next 15 years uh, in the transition. And we may see something maybe with hydrogen or something else comes along in the meantime on uh, battery production is with the materials that we've got now. It's, it's, just, it's an exorbitant price. Uh, we don't have the infrastructure to support it. Uh, there's no way that we're going to see it. So I think we're going to see a lot of really nice elite uh, electric cars that are going to be the forerunners of the electric car industry, but they're not going to be out there in, in high production. Do you think? Do you think there's a real, do you think there's a real possibility for design in the because of the way electric cars are, are packaged? Do you think that's going to open up design for cars again? Well, I think that we see that because the uh, uh, the electric car platform lends itself to to anybody. I mean, that's why we see. You know, you go to these shows and there's like a dozen new electric cars that are showing up every time. And you're wondering, where are they coming from? Well, there's a lot of people that are excited about it. And because they don't have to do a lot of really serious engineering, and they can just put it on the skateboard platform and show up with a pretty body. That uh, There's all kinds of new stuff out there. But uh, there's a lot more to being successful and just making it pretty. I mean, you look at the new Lucid, it's a very handsome automobile. I think that's going to probably be a real competitor with Tesla. Um, uh, but we'll, we'll see. You know, I'm sure Elon uh, 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 got some new stuff coming out. It's going to be great. What did you, did you, see, the, uh, did you see his Cybertruck? 
Yes, of course. Yeah. What do you think of that? And I think that, you know, again, you got to look at it's going to be successful because it's extremely cheap to produce. It's a good workhorse. And uh, I think that anybody that uses a truck can see what the advantages of it is. So they've already got more orders and they know what to do with them. Uh, I think there's some really exciting uh, new cars coming from General Motors. You look at their new electric Cadillac. It's a pretty handsome automobile. And I've seen uh, uh, Buick has done uh, a new concept that they're using on TV. It's really got some handsome lines on it. So there's some good stuff that's out there. We're going to see it. Well, I think that, that uh, I think I've, I've probably harangued you enough with questions, Pete. Um, I, I just want to say it's again. It's been such a delight and honor to talk to you, man. I mean, you know, you, well, great. you've seen you've seen so much, and you and you've and you've contributed so much. Uh, and I love hearing all the stories. So, well, great. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do it more often. That would be you know? fantastic. Hopefully, hopefully, by uh, yeah, toward maybe toward the end of this year, we can have something really exciting to tell you about. Oh, really? Oh, I would love to. Yeah. Please, I mean, I'm ha- I'd be delighted to chat with you again, man. So, I mean, you know, whenever you and Gail have some time, I would love to hear whatever it is Absolutely. with you. It'll be, be good. Oh, we've yeah. got some really exciting stuff coming up. Okay. And, uh, Keep me in the loop. I'm very, very, you know, we'll see. You. All right. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate right. it. And thank you to Gail as well for helping right. set this up. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.